Marriage is made in heaven, so is thunder and lightning, and they're both a little bit scary. Redeeming the Time Brothers podcast, a podcast by Gene Kissinger and Norman Kissinger, two brothers who spent their lives in ministry and raising large families. Our desire is to provide a digital place for those who long to belong, and we want to provide digital tools across multiple platforms to develop disciples for the second coming of Jesus. We are going to dive into a short series called Maximum Marriage based on a, a Sunday school class that I did by a book by John Maxwell of the same name, Maximum Marriage. And I want to dig into the concepts. If you uh, Have you ever heard of the law of first mention? The law of first mention says that if I, uh, if, if I say something that you don't understand, you have no experience with, I have to define the thing when I'm telling it to you. So let's say you've never ever seen an airplane before then I would say, well, it's kind of like a Jeep, but it's got wings on it and it flies through the air like a bird. I would have to somehow take something that you did understand and then apply it to that thing that you don't understand to define what this thing called an airplane is. Well, marriage, we've been given a definition of marriage in the early parts of Genesis. And so what marriage is and how marriage works is described in these early chapters of the Bible because God's design for a man and a woman is this marriage relationship and he wants it to work well. But the trouble is we start out with marriage and we go into it with our own concept of how it should work and what should unfold in it. And unfortunately, our plan A simply doesn't work. Over time, sort of the chemical romance that takes place within our brain, when you're dating somebody and you're in the early stages of love, uh, your brain is actually kind of uh, hopped up on particular neurochemicals that makes you not able to see very clearly that other person and also not able to see yourself and this thing called marriage very clearly. So God wants us to go back to the original meaning of marriage and then flesh that out in our commitment that we make one to another. Now, how it kind of unfolds once our plan A begins to break down is first of all, the husband, he begins to get confused because he doesn't know how what he should do. He doesn't know if he should be more solicitous. He doesn't know if he should be more absent. He's not really quite sure what steps he needs to take. Does he need to be more of a leader? What does that look like? And he begins to ask a lot of questions. And then he ends up retreating from the responsibilities that he has. He ends up going the wrong direction, going away from the family and away from his wife. And then the, the wife reacts, then he reacts against his wife. He begins, he begins to resent her and he begins to fight against her and they, they end up competing with one another. Uh, then he runs elsewhere. Uh, he sort of takes off and leaves the home, whether it's an actual physical abdication of the home or it's a mental and emotional abdication of the home, he ends up leaving. Now, the, the wife, the same thing kind of happens to her. In this plan A relation, uh, plan A of marriage that they're trying to cobble together themselves, she begins to reason from pride and she goes, well, if, if you want it done right, you need to do it yourself. And then she releases her husband from responsibility and then she resents her husband because he's not taking the responsibility and then she ends up running elsewhere. The children, after both parents have essentially abdicated their roles in the home, they're reasoning from insecurity and they refuse to communicate. They kind of shut down and get quiet and don't talk. And you, all you get from them is the grunts that sometimes uh, are supposed to mean something, but we can't figure out what they mean. 
they end up resenting their parents, and then they run elsewhere. And so what you literally have is an abdication of the home where everybody that was in the home is now running from the home, headed a radically different direction. And so God doesn't want competition in the marriage. God wants completion in the marriage. Competition is where two people are fighting against each other and they're both indeed headed the wrong direction. And instead, God wants completion, not competition. And so let's look at God's plan. Let's call it plan oneness for marriage. Um, in my experience, couples and in my own marriage, I found that the greatest problem is competing against each other rather than completion and working with each other. So there's this oneness factor, moving, moving from ouch to wow. Um, we end up getting hurt by the other person in the relationship and then sometimes resentment builds up. I don't know if you've watched, but there's sometimes some couples you'll see where they are so negative that almost every phrase that comes out of their mouth is derogatory and attacking the other person that they're married to. That's not going to create a good marriage. In fact, that's a recipe for disasters. One of the, one of the highest indicators of divorce is this negative, uh, resentful attacks that end up coming out of our mouths and we have to stop it. So there's this, this oneness factor, moving from ouch to wow. We need to go, wow, God brought this other person into my life to complete, complete me. Here's how it's spoken in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 18 and then verse 21 through 23. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him an, a help meet for him. And then verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is not bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. I, I like what Matthew Henry used to say about this passage. He said that God didn't take woman out of his head, uh, a bone of his head, so that she would rule over him. God didn't take a woman out of a bone from his foot so that he would rule over her. God took a, a, a rib from his side so because she would be close to his heart and they would walk side by side. It's this concept that we are a team. My, my wife and I are a team. We're radically different than each other. And if we're not careful, those differences, you know, they say that opposites attract, and that is true, but if you're not careful, opposites will also attack. Opposites will also get into a lot of headbutting because it's very easy to assume that your way is the right way to handle the situation and you end up sort of butting heads with the other person trying to make them see your way in the situation. And then there's not just the oneness factor where, wow, God has brought this person into my life, but then the responsibility factor. We have to define what our roles and goals are. What are the roles and goals of a husband? What are the roles and goals of a wife? What are the roles and goals of a, of a father? What are the roles and goals of a mother? We have to understand those if we're going to be what we need to be within the marriage. And what we tend to do if we're in a competition relationship is we tend to um, focus on what the other person's roles are and how they're not fulfilling their role. And then we blame them for the degradation of the relationship rather than understanding I'm only responsible for me. So I've got to focus on what God wants me to do within this relationship. And then besides the oneness 
factor of wow rather than attacking each other and, and the responsibility factor of me drilling down and focusing on what God wants me to do in the relationship. There's also the intimacy factor. That's learning the fine art of communication uh, that doesn't cripple with uh, the bad comments that are there. And that's a, a personal intimacy, a closeness that, that is knit together by proper communication rather than attack communication. <laughs> Maxwell says this, wrap her up, I'll take her. That's what Adam must have said when he first saw Eve. We're, we're going to explore four phases of most marriages. Number one is the honeymoon phase. The honeymoon phase is characterized by euphoria. Uh, it, it's uh, the, math, the mathematical equation would be one plus one equals who knows and who cares. As long as you get to be with this lovely, stunning woman, uh, everything is fine. As long as you get to be with that hunky, uh, wonderful guy, everything is going to be fine. Uh, but that's the honeymoon phase. And of course, that doesn't last. It shifts into something else. And then it can shift into the roommate phase. Long past the burning desire to show all visitors your wedding album. And the equation is one plus one equals two. And it, it's where you're two separate people. You happen to live at the same address. But there's uh, there's no real closeness or intimacy. So the honeymoon phase, wow, you're locked onto the other person, how physically stunning they are, how they make you feel. And then the roommate phase, you're well past that and you're two very separate people. Then the family phase, uh, this has a lot to do with survival. And uh, the battle cry of this phase is let's have a baby. And so the idea is if I just have a baby and we just have a little one in, it'll sort of make everything all better. Uh, and uh, so the idea here is one plus one equals three. And, it, and then there's the business uh, partner phase. The honeymoon is over. Having children has lost its uh, shiny or its glamour. Now two people are in a frantic search to find themselves. This, of course, leads to frustration and exhaustion. Now you encounter two things that is assault the couple at various times in the honeymoon in, in these phases. In the honeymoon, th there's an attack, and this is an odd event in the life of a couple. It's almost as if they woke up one day and said, what is going on? We share the same, same location, but we're not as passionate as we used to be. So they decide to fix it. Only this is hard to pull off because it isn't the same as it was the first go around. So they've lost kind of the, the endorphins and the other sort of chemicals that are firing in the brain in, in the new phase of the relationship and, and they end up uh, end up attacking each other rather than drawing close to each other. Now, now there's a midlife heart attack. Uh, and that's what, what happens then is when the man wakes up one day and realizes that he had been successful in pursuing career goals, but is bankrupt emotionally. He's dead inside, and so he tries to re-enter the family after years of being an absentee father. Mom resents this and meets him with an attitude, Look, Mr. Johnny-come-lately, we don't need you. And so the, the dad who's been away now tries to come back into the family and tries to make it better but now the mom who's taken up some of those other dad responsibilities now she's fighting back at him coming back in because essentially she thinks he's saying she doesn't know what she's doing and then on it, it goes down from there so she's not exempt from this attack either only with her uh, she is invested heavily in the domestic arena, only to end up with a feeling like a glorified dishwasher, taxi driver, and maid. She then compares the father's involvement in the home and her own and concludes that, that, that she, the conclusion that she draws is that it'd be nice to be free like her husband is free. Uh, and one option is she throws herself into a career or becomes involved with another more fulfilling relationship. And the husband is checked out of the marriage. The wife is checked out of the marriage. The kids are running scared. 
and the home is essentially empty by, for all practical purposes. Uh, now there's two lists that seem like everybody carries around. There's a list of expectations and those are what we want in our mate, what we want from the, our marriage partner. This list causes a lot of trouble in marriage because uh, we're not good at communicating our expectations. Most of the time we want them to sort of figure out what it is that we want from them. We, we want them to magically know and if they magically know that means that they really love us. Well that's not, that's an inappropriate way of handling communication in marriage, especially if you want the guy to magically know, because we barely operate at a communication level with our mouth. We're certainly not mind readers, and so it, you just just find out whatever you, your husband would get you for Christmas, and you probably got a pretty good idea. He's not a mind reader, so we, we need to understand if, if we're going to have this list of expectations, we need to make certain first of all that the reasonable expectations that there are expectations that we really should be putting on the other person and then that the, there are ones that are going to be realized expectations. So disappointment comes if I have unrealistic expectations of somebody else and I, I want them to jump through a bunch of hoops that really they don't have any need to jump through and shouldn't jump through. But also if there's any legitimate expectations that I have of them and they're unrealized or that person hasn't met those legitimate expectations, both of those will issue forth into a disappointment on our part towards the other person which sort of uh, goes into this cycle of uh, this downward spiral of the relationship. Now the second list that we carry around in our head about our partner besides the expectations that we have of them is our mates weaknesses and, and so we see the flaws in them. Uh, we, we hear the stories that they tell a thousand times, we see the, the missteps that they make regularly, we see those areas in life where they are weak and they're not, they, they don't behave up to snuff as it were, what we would expect them to do. As a result of that we're disappointed in them and this feeds our disappointment because we're focusing on their weakness. Now this list is only partially formed during the dating process, but boy, once each one of them sort of wakes up from the romance stage of things, they get a sharp pencil and a long list, and they've got a massive list of what your weaknesses are. Now, it used to be it was a list of how great you were. Now it's a list of how bad you are at very specific things, and this list from both the husband and the wife that they have for each other it's an attempt to blame the, the downgrade of the relationship on the other person so that so that we can say, well, it's all your fault that this is, this is a train wreck that we're in. Uh, and we need to be careful that we don't do this. So that, then it creates kind of a, a performance treadmill where your mate is trying to do, uh, you know, trying to live up to these expectations. And some of them are unrealistic, and some of them they some of them they may not be able to. But anyway, we need to understand that this creates a performance treadmill. The pressure's on, and and now all of a sudden your marriage becomes like a pressure cooker instead of like this free flowing relationship between two mature individuals who love and care for each other and communicate what they need. So here, let me give you a basic understanding. First of all, quit being a jerk. This is really deep theology. Quit being a jerk to your mate. This is super simple. The reality is a lot of times we treat complete strangers better than we, if we treat our mates. So if somebody we see somebody in the store 
and maybe we, they get in our way. We say, oh, excuse me. And, and then we sort of back off and we allow them to go first. But then in the home, you bump up against, uh, you bump up against your mate and they're like, would you get out of my way? Would you quit being right underfoot all the time? And we're, we're, not, we're not solicitous. We're not, we're, we don't care uh, for them and we're not caring for them in a proper way. We need to quit being a jerk. Um, we, we just talk bad about each other. We've got to stop that. So, it, would you let would you let somebody else say the same things that you say to your mate to them? You know, sometimes we, we would allow uh, we wouldn't allow somebody else to say negative things to our mate, but we say these negative things, and it's unacceptable. We've got to change that negative dynamic in our communication. Here's a here's a principle that that I've tried to work on. It's Ephesians 4:29. It says, "Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers." If you want to turn your marriage around, if you want to maximize your marriage, the one step that you need to get a hold of right away, immediately is you need to change how you're talking to your mate. You need to do it now. It's not something you can put off until next week. This negative communication cycle will literally erode your relationship. Ultimately, it will destroy your relationship. You've got to let it go. And I understand you're hurt. I get I get how you got to that place where there's negative communication. Your mate has frustrated you. Your mate has disappointed you. Uh, but you know what? Here, let me just be wakey-wakey honest with you. You have frustrated your mate, and you have disappointed your mate as well. And so, so instead of projecting everything off onto them and saying, it's all your fault, how come you don't make this any better? Let's together work on fixing this thing called marriage. Now, my friend Jim O'Donnell, he pastors the, the airport for Baptist Church in Twin Falls. And he's a big man. He's he's tall. He's big. He played football in college. He was in the Air Force. He's, his boys are all huge too, man. But probably some of them will watch this. These guys are massive. And one of the things that I got from him is when he does marriage counseling, he's had a master's in counseling. When he does marriage counseling, premarital, he always arm wrestles the bride-to-be. Of course, he beats her. I mean, he just beats her bad. But then the two of them will arm wrestle him together where it's two against one. He told me he's never won the second time. And, and he'll say to the little bride, how come I beat you the first time, but you beat me the second time? And, he, and she'll say, because we did it together. You and I have got to quit competing with each other, quit trying to go, go on this thing alone, and instead link up together, team up together to decide we're gonna move into God's appropriate plan for our marriage and we're going to make it work and work well so that our children can see what a proper marriage looks like so that our children can find out how to live in intimacy within marriage rather than in the chaos that has become marriage. So in, in these future lessons that we're going to be looking at, we're going to help uh, help release ourselves from some of these negative tendencies that we found ourselves engaging in, breaking free from these scripts. Have you ever noticed a lot of your fights and a lot of your problems are literally the same problem played out again and again and again, only on a different day in a different setting, but essentially it's the same problem. You just haven't resolved that problem and you're following a script and so you have to learn how to flip the script to something else. God wants to totally rewrite the script that you're, that you're taking your marriage scenarios from so that it becomes something that's life-giving and life-affirming rather than destroying so that it builds the relationship rather than destroying the relationship so we we literally could you literally could record most of your arguments and not even show up just push play 
with your part of the argument. He could push play with his part of the argument. And you could just walk out of the room and go about your business. You'd at least get more stuff done if you did it that way. But instead, we keep doing it again and again and again. And here's how the dance of intimacy works. It works this way. If, if I'm dancing with somebody, with them, and, and I want them to change the dance, I can't just expect them to change. What I have to do is change what I'm doing. And when I change what I'm doing, that of necessity changes how the dance plays out. And so if I want to flip the script, I've got to quit saying what I'm saying, and I've got to start saying what God would want me to stay within the situation. So we're going to be looking at, uh, at Adam and Eve. We're going to be looking at us, at our relationships, about how to move to that place of oneness in the relationship where I'm responsible for me and I'm living out to, for the very best of my ability, I'm living out what it looks like to be a godly husband and, and trusting God to work with my wife to help her to be whatever she needs to be. But I can change me. I may not be able to make somebody else change, but I can change what I'm doing. And that in turn flips the script. That changes things within the relationship. So we quit competing with each other and begin to complete each other. Now, if you, if Brother Donald, uh, my, my uh, pastor friend who does marriage counseling a lot, he says that uh, he'll... He'll put his, his hands together and have them pull his hands apart, and they'll pull it apart really easy, because that's two people that are actually totally separate. But he'll have he'll have his hands like this, and then he'll try to have them pull apart, and it's almost impossible to pull apart, because they're at that place of, of completion, where they're each holding on to each other, they're committed to each other. And I, I gotta tell you, I think that's there's a lot of wisdom in that simple illustration so that we can develop the kind of relationship that we want. We're no longer competing, we're now completing each other. So we're gonna we're gonna be working on this. We're gonna take it a little bite at a time. And so maybe next Sunday, next Wednesday sometime, we'll dig into another component of this. Let's I'm going to pray for your marriage. I'm going to pray for you that God will help you to be what you can be and do what you can do to make your marriage a maximum marriage. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for these dear believers. I pray that you'd be with them, God. I, I know that marriage is a hard thing. It's not an easy thing. At the beginning of it, we think that it will be because we're, we're under that those chemical uh, hormones in our brain are kind of messed up and we, we don't see it clearly, but God, help us to see this relationship the way that you see the relationship and help us to, instead of following my plan or Sandy's plan, help us follow your plan for what our marriage should look like and help us to begin to get rid of these negative communication patterns so that we can begin to speak life into the marriage rather than death into it, God. Help us to speak words of encouragement and praise and strength into the marriage that we might get the kind of marriage that is life-giving, not death-affirming. I pray that you would just bless us. I pray that you would draw these couples close together in their own relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for tuning in today.